Today we are in Exodus 14 and 15. Let me make the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. These were the words of 17th century Scottish writer and politician Andrew Fletcher. Maybe said with a bit of overstatement, but nonetheless, I think Fletcher's point was that as long as there was Scottish music, Fletcher was a Scottish patriot who loved his homeland, So he made this statement to say that as long as there was Scottish music, there would be a Scotland. You know, across the ages, peoples and nations have used songs to communicate values, culture, tradition, and history. Songs forge identity. Songs give voice to who we are and what we're about. You know, here in Singapore, we do the same. We've used songs for nation building for many, many years now. You know, there have been more than 30 National Day Parade song since the first one in 1985. You know, I still remember singing Stand Up for Singapore as a primary five kid. Yeah, that was the first NDP song. And I think this is testament to how memorable songs can be, how, how much they linger in the national consciousness. You know, maybe some of us still get teary-eyed when we hear Home, which is incidentally 25 years old this year. You know, God's people too have always understood the power of songs. You know, Protestant reformer Martin Luther, not only did he recover, help recover the gospel, but he also is credited with reviving congregational singing in the church. You know, Luther saw music as vital to the spiritual health of God's people. You know, he said these words, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. That's I think customary Luther overstatement, but I think true, that the gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. You know, the world has its love songs, its patriotic songs. What do we sing? God's people sing the praises of the only one who is truly worthy of all praise, worship, and adoration. You know, God's people have always been a singing people. Our passage today contains the first ever hymn found in all of Scripture. It's the Song of Moses. The Lord is glorified in the praises of His redeemed people, whom He saves. You know, singing is a natural response to God's redemption. And this is the big idea of our passage this morning. We worship the Lord who leads His people, fights for His people, and who is praised by His people. So three points this morning. The Lord who leads, the Lord who fights, the Lord who is to be praised by His people. So let me begin by reading from chapter 13, verse verse 17, reading into chapter 14, verse 4. The Lord leads His people. Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of this wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, we can divide the book of Exodus into three main parts based on the location of God's people. 
So part one, as we've seen in the first 13 chapters or so of Exodus, we find Israel in Egypt, so that's part one. Part two looks at the journey that Israel makes from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Part three uh, finds Israel camped at Mount Sinai as they receive the law of God. So we are now in part two. Uh, Israel, the, the Lord has judged Egypt through the ten plagues. Uh, Pharaoh has driven the Israelites out. The Lord has freed his people from slavery and the Israelites are now headed to Mount Sinai where they will worship God and receive his word. The journey will be difficult, but these verses tell us that the Lord is with his people. These verses speak of how God is present with his people and he will guide and guard them. The Lord goes before his people, meaning that he he will go to prepare the way for them. The pillar of cloud in the daytime and the pillar of fire at night, taken together, they both represent God's constant 24-7 presence with His people. As we heard last week, we are not our own, for we have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We are God's treasured possession in Christ. He loves us as He loves his beloved son. You know, the, the pillars of cloud and fire, these, these verses tell us, did not depart from before the people. I think that's hugely encouraging and assuring. It's a statement of how God will never leave nor forsake us. You know, this finds New Testament counterpart in the words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28. I am with you always to the end of the age. I pray that whatever we're going through, however your week has been, I pray this truth of God's constant presence will encourage us, comfort us, especially when we walk through life's dark valleys. As we just sung in that hymn, He leadeth me. O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. So whatever our circumstances, we can rest in the comfort that He leads us. He leads us. And we see God reversing the effects of sin. One of the dramatic, significant effects of sin is how men and women are banished from God's holy presence as a result of the fall. But notice here, God saves, and what what does He do? He, He dwells with His people. He is present with His people. That that's a reversal of the consequences of sin. Our sin separates us from a holy God, but the holy God graciously deals with sinners like us, draws us to Himself and is present with us by His grace. We can think of the whole Bible as as the epic story of how the holy God draws near to save sinners. the, 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 The aim of God in the gospel is for Him to dwell with His people and for us to be His people. And you see the Lord keeping His word to prepare a place for His people where He will dwell with them. You know, at the end of Genesis, Joseph, uh, the son of Jacob, you know, because Joseph trusted in God's promises of a place in the promised land, Joseph said to his brothers at the end of Genesis 50, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And sure enough, In verse 19, in chapter 13 of our text, God does what Joseph said. And then Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Yes, they were in a hurry to leave Egypt, but they remembered their pledge to Joseph to take his bones with them. Beloved, we we can have confidence in the faithful God. Our confidence in Him will not be disappointed, even if we die in faith even if we die not having received the things promised, just as Joseph died without having received the things promised. But we can have confidence that if we trust in the Lord, He will lead us safely to our eternal home. Our trust in Him, our confidence in Him will not be disappointed. I'm sure many of us have been disappointed by false hopes, by false promises, but God is not like that. We can rest in Him. 
However, where the Lord leads us may not be the way that makes most sense to us. You notice how the Israelites don't take the, the shortest route to Canaan. You know, instead of taking the most direct route to Canaan, which was by the way of the land of the Philistines, so that hugged the, the coastline up northwards into Canaan from Egypt. So that was the shortest way. But instead of doing that, the Lord leads Israel the long way. Why? It's because the Lord knows the limits of what His people can bear. He tells us in this passage that Israel is unprepared for hardship. Israel is unprepared for war with the Philistines. And and God knows the hearts of His people. He knows that when they face trials, uh, too much trials, the hardship will break them and will make them want to return to Egypt. They'll give up. our, 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 Our Heavenly Father knows us. Our Heavenly Father knows what we can bear, what our limits are, and He shows compassion to us. He leads us according to His knowledge of us. You know, I think this is hugely comforting again, that, that God's leading of us isn't arbitrary, it's not subject to what His whim or fancy, but God shows compassion to us. He leads us in places that are good for us, for our eternal good. As Psalm 103 tells us, He remembers that we are dust. He means to grow us, not crush us. So whatever you're going through, yes, it, it, may, it will be hard, but you can also trust that hard as, it may, hard as it is, it's not meant to crush you. God is refining you. He's growing you as He leads you. Now, on the journey of faith, the quickest, shortest, or most efficient way may not be the best way in God's economy. So we can trust the Lord to lead us His way his timing. You know, lean not on our own understanding, as Proverbs 3 reminds us. You know, the Lord leads in surprising ways. You know, he tells Israel to U turn. Chapter 14, verse 1 Turn back and encamped in front of Pi Hahiroth by the sea. They're still in Egypt at this point. So they're about to leave Egypt, but God tells them to turn back and remain in Egypt to camp at this place called Pi Hahiroth. Uh, we, we don't know exactly where this place is, but we do know that it's by the sea, by the Red Sea. You know, imagine you're an Israelite, thinking, uh, does God know what He's doing? You know, we've gone this way and now we're supposed to turn back. You know, we, we don't look kindly on U-turns, right? Uh, we make U-turns when we're unsure. We make U-turns when we're mistaken. We make U-turns when we're just plain lost. So it looks as if God is leading His people around in circles, right? They might be thinking, uh, haven't we been this way before? This looks awfully familiar. You know, and, in, and indeed, you know, Pharaoh thinks the Israelites are lost. Pharaoh himself thinks that the Israelites have aimlessly wandered into a dead end. And notice how they are camped, facing the wilderness, with their backs to the sea. There's nowhere to go, no place to run. So, so why on earth would God lead His people into a dead end? You know, he tells us in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. What's the Lord doing? The Lord is laying a trap for Pharaoh. You know, by, by leading Israel into a dead end, Pharaoh's going to think, ah, oh, great. Now, I have the advantage, I can come and wipe them out because they have nowhere to run. So Pharaoh will be drawn into pursuing Israel into the sea because he knows that there's nowhere else they can go. And the Lord will then display His glory by defeating Egypt's army. Then the Egyptians shall know that the Lord is God. That's the point. God is leading His people in a way to display His glory, that the Lord is God. Now, we, we often expect God to do what makes most sense to us. You know, we, we often want Him to make our paths smooth and easy. Now, beloved, this is a humbling passage to consider because this passage tells us 
that that's not God's priority. His priority is not to make our lives as easy or as smooth or as comfortable as possible. I, I think that's the bare truth of this passage. That's not God's priority for us. God's priority for us is that we glorify Him, whatever that path may look like. This is a humbling passage that reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. If if Israel were to have his own way, they would go by the way of the Philistines because that would be the nearest and quickest. Uh, But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than ours. And we need to contend with this truth that God may often lead us on a circuitous path with many U-turns. We could feel at times that our life is going round in circles. But the Lord does so for our good and for His glory. Again, we can trust the Lord and realize that His purposes for us are much bigger than our small, petty plans. The the road may be long and winding, but this, this passage assures us that God knows what He's doing and that we are never lost with the Lord leading us. The Lord leads His people. Point two, the Lord fights for His people. Let me read from verse 5 in chapter 14, reading to the end of the chapter. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. The Lord fights for His people. Realizing that Egypt has lost its slave labor, right, its source of economic gain, Pharaoh and his servants regret letting Israel leave. You know, and, and thinking that the Israelites are trapped, Pharaoh mobilizes his forces to pursue Israel. And it's, it's, it's striking the, the amount of men and chariots that he musters. You know, this is not a small kind of pursuing force. This is a huge, formidable army with a huge number of chariots, at least 600, 600 chosen chariots and others. So they have an elite force of chariots along with other chariots, which were like the tanks of ancient warfare pursuing Israel. Israel, on the other hand, only had foot soldiers. And what's more, they had a large number of women and children to worry about. You can see the, the, the armies on both sides, and clearly this is not a fair fight. Israel will not stand a chance against the might of Egypt. We're meant to see that. And the Egyptian army soon catches up with Israel at the sea. Not having women and children to worry about, certainly they can move a lot faster. They catch up with Israel by the sea, and, and the Israelites start to panic when they see Pharaoh's forces approaching. Right? Verse 10, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. You know, they, they had a view of the wilderness. Remember, their backs were to the sea, looking out into the wilderness. Imagine seeing this vast army with chariots and all the dust kicked up by the chariots and you know that doom is coming. You know, verse 8 tells us earlier that the, the people of Israel were going out defiantly, right, with, with courage and confidence, but, but now they are terrified. Now, why this sudden change of heart? by the Israelites. And I think perhaps it's because the Israelites were walking by sight, not faith. All they could see was the problem in their immediate situation. They, they lifted up their eyes and they saw, walking by faith, the problem, right? And the problem was this huge Egyptian army. This, this is quite remarkable because these were the same Israelites who had witnessed the ten plagues you know, they, they lived through the ten plagues. They, they knew that God had redeemed them through His power in the ten plagues, and now they are terrified. They've lost sight of God. I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, we see ourselves in these Israelites, don't we? You know, perhaps we've, received, we've experienced God's grace and faithfulness to us in the past. We've been saved by His Son, and yet how quickly we forget how quickly we forget. We forget our redemption, and then we get discouraged. We lose heart, we despair when we focus more on our circumstances than on God's faithfulness and grace. You know, we, we lift our eyes and we, all we can see is our problem. So what do we do when we're disheartened? We blame the leaders. We criticize others. Right, you notice how the Israelites are quick to blame Moses for getting them into this mess. You know, he says to him, why don't you just leave us in Egypt? The people are actually blaming God. Right? Because verse 10 says, they cried out to the Lord. And then Moses kind of conveys their cry to God. That's why God says to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Because Moses representing Israel in crying out to the Lord in this way. So they blame Moses, but in fact, they are blaming God for leading them into this mess. You know, I, think when, when, I think the psychology of this passage is quite fascinating. 
know, when, when tough times come, it, it can be really tempting to look back on the past with rose-tinted glasses. And that's exactly what the Israelites are doing. You know, they, they see Egypt coming and they say, ah, oh, you know, the days in Egypt were so much better. You know, we could serve, we could serve the Egyptians. That was so much better than being in the wilderness. You know, like, like the Israelites, we, we so quickly long for the good old days, right? When tough times come. And I think we forget that the past was even worse. You know, the Israelites say, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians. Really? It's not what they said in the earlier part of Exodus. They cried out to the Lord for deliverance, right? Why are they saying it is better for us to serve the Egyptians? Really? You know, God redeems the Israelites that they might serve Him. But they would rather serve the Egyptians. You know, this, this is a, it's the same word being used. Serve the Egyptians or serve God. It's a question fundamentally of worship and allegiance. Who will God's people be truly faithful to? The Egyptians, because they think it's easier? Or to God, who's leading them into trouble and trial? I think what God said about them is true. This is why He didn't lead them by the way of the sea through the land of the Philistines. When trials come, the Israelites change their minds and yearn to return to Egypt. They would rather choose slavery over salvation because they think life is easier and better as slaves. Beloved, beware of longing for the world and compromising with worldliness during tough times. Now, for example, we may use our trials to justify sin. You know, we say things like, yeah, I'm, I'm impatient, I'm irritable. Why? Because I'm stressed out. Right? We, we, we kind of turn to worldliness when trials come as opposed to turning to the Lord. We, we go back to Egypt time and time again because we think our trials justify us to turn back to Egypt because then I can do what I want. Or so we think. Life is easier than following the Lord. Now, yes, living as a Christian isn't easy, but Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. So don't give up. Don't give up and believe the world's lies that life without Jesus is better. It's not. Don't go back to Egypt. Remember that when we were slaves to sin, Remember that when we were slaves to sin, we were without God and without hope in the world. We, we had nothing worthwhile to live for. You know, we remember our redemption. Jesus has set us free from sin and death. Remember who we are in Christ. We are God's children. We're no longer orphans. We have a loving Heavenly Father who has lavished His grace and love upon us. We are fellow heirs with Christ of an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You know, don't, don't believe the temporary lies that this life is better without Jesus. That's what it means to live by faith and not by sight. No, yes, we suffer with Jesus now. The Lord will lead us to difficult places, but we shall also be glorified with Him. You know, in, the, in the early days of the Second World War, things looked very bleak for Britain. The Nazis had defeated much of Europe. And it was at, at that time, I think this was June of 1940, just before France fell to the Nazis, it was at that time that uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill stood up in Parliament and he uttered these famous words in a speech that he gave at the House of Commons. He said, Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that men will still say this was their finest hour. The famous finest hour speech. Well, this is, in, in Exodus 14, this is Moses' finest hour yet. Confronted with the might of the Egyptian army and mutiny among his own people, 
He doesn't give in to fear or unbelief. You see how Moses steps up to reassure the people how? Not by pointing to himself and his fabulous leadership skills. He, he, he points his people to the Lord. Right? Notice there's no self-defense here. There's no defensiveness. There's no self-justification. Moses doesn't try to argue with the people, say, why, why do you call me? Like, you know, why do you say these things about me? It's not my fault. No, Moses simply points the people to the Lord. And I think this is a precious leadership lesson, isn't it? That when we face criticism, when we face blame from others, what do we do? We don't justify ourselves. Leaders, we don't justify ourselves. It's not about defending ourselves and getting our point across. Rather, our responsibility is to point to the Lord, to simply point to the Lord, to, 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 to show God's people His faithfulness, His power, and His grace. So they see Him, not us. Moses steps up to reassure the people, and he says to them, you know, these glorious words in, in verses 13 and 14, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. What, what glorious words. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It is Egypt, not Israel, who will be defeated. The sovereign Lord has been in control all along. Now, this is not plan B. This has always been his plan. He's been in control all along, hardening Pharaoh's heart, leading the Egyptians into a trap. The Lord fights for his people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There is nothing Israel needs to do or can do in this situation except to silently stand and see God save. The Israelites are spectators of their own salvation. Uh, this passage, this, these two verses speak of how we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, not works. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Like murmuring, rebellious Israel, we have all failed to honour God because we have sinned against our Creator. We are like the complaining Israelites who blame God when things go wrong in life. We deserve His righteous judgment against us. We've not given thanks to Him. We've not worshipped Him as God. In tough times, our hearts become unfaithful or even in good times, our hearts become unfaithful. We are helpless to save ourselves. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent His Son to redeem sinners like us. Jesus died the death that we should have died so that our sins can be forgiven. Jesus rose from the grave. He did something that we could never do for ourselves, to give us life. And this Lord Jesus is our salvation. This is the Lord who fights for us. Just as the Lord led Israel to a dead end with their backs to the sea, so He will bring us to an end of ourselves. He will lead us to dead ends so that we stop trusting in ourselves. God, lead us through, God leads us through trials to help us see our need for Him. You know, speaking of his own suffering, the Apostle Paul said these words in 2 Corinthians 1. He said, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Now, the Israelites thought their situation was hopeless and that they were as good as dead. But the Lord can do the impossible. He is the Creator who rules over all creation including the wind and the waves. And he commands the people of Israel to go forward because he will open up a way for them through the sea. As the creator, he is well able to do that. And he tells Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
You know, this language recalls what God did at creation when He gathered the waters into one place and made the dry land appear. Same phrase, dry land, dry ground. The, the parting of the sea, we're meant to see that this is like a new creation. Same creation language being used. In fact, many years later, it will be said of Jesus, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Lord protects his people as their rear guard. The pillars of cloud and fire come between the Egyptians and the Israelites, giving Israel time to break camp and march into the sea. Right, verse 21, the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The waters became like fortress walls on both sides of Israel, allowing the people to pass through safely. The, the sea that was so terrifying was used by God to protect His people. Seeing Israel cross on dry land, the Egyptians pursue them into the sea, but the Lord causes their chariot wheels to become stuck, throwing the Egyptian forces into a panic. At this point, even they are forced to concede that the Lord fights for His people. Let us flee. The Lord fights for them. The Lord is doing just as He said. He will get glory over Pharaoh and Egypt so that they see that this is the Lord's doing. And they acknowledge that here in these verses. You know, the Egyptians tried to escape but the Lord commands Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea. This time, the high walls of water come crashing down on the Egyptians, wiping out the Egyptian army. God wins. Just like that. God wins. He has gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Once more, the Lord makes a gracious distinction between Israel and Egypt. The Egyptians drown in the sea. The Israelites walk through on dry ground. Once more, the Lord saves through judgment. He judges Egypt that he might save Israel. The sea brings death to some, but leads to life for others. Israel itself also comes to know the Lord. Verse 31, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. You know, Israel's crossing of the sea is a, it's a watershed event in the Old Testament. You know, this is God's greatest redeeming work in the Old Testament. You know, the rest of the Old Testament looks back on this event. You, know, you can read it in the Psalms, you can read it in the Prophets. Uh, the rest of the Old Testament looks back on this event as the watershed, redemptive event in the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament also looks forward, through the lenses of this event, to an even greater exodus. So the Old Testament looks back on this event in Exodus 14, and the Old Testament looks forward to another greater Exodus 14 event that God will accomplish while living on this side of the cross, we have the privilege and the benefit of knowing that the greater exodus has already happened through God's firstborn son, Jesus Christ. You know, this redeeming work has been fulfilled in Christ through his death and resurrection. You know, Jesus has gone into the sea in his death and he has emerged from the sea in his resurrection. That, that's the significance of the crossing of the sea. It symbolizes death and resurrection that only God is able to accomplish. How do we know that? Because it's happened for Jesus. He has died and is risen from the dead. This is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus has opened up the way through the sea for us, through death for us. And if we believe in Him, then we are united with Him in His death, but also in His resurrection. That is the good news of the gospel. The way through the sea has been opened up for us through the one who has died and raised for us. We die to our old sinful selves. We safely pass through death. and We are raised 
to new life. Jesus fights for us. And he has fought. And he has won the victory for us. Our greatest enemies are not Egypt. Our greatest enemies are Satan, sin, and death. Jesus has conquered all three through his death and resurrection. You know, friends, the the Lord fights for us. We, We only need to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. There's nothing we can do but trust in the salvation that Christ has accomplished. Have have we trusted in Him? Are we still striving, trying to save ourselves? Are we complaining that we can't do anything? God wants us to be silent, to stand still, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. We do that. We stand still, trust Him, move forward when He tells us to. Rest in Him. He fights for His people. Finally, the Lord is praised by His people. Let me read chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send, them, you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them but the people of Egypt, people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is praised by his people. You know, look, at, look at verse 31 of chapter 14. Notice the order. The the Israelites see for themselves the Lord's great power and redemption. Then they trust Him. You know what comes next? Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Then, you know the, word, the first word there is so important. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So there's an order, right? We see God our Savior. We trust in God our Savior. Then we sing praise to God our Savior. Singing is the spontaneous response of a redeemed people. You don't have to tell the redeemed to sing to the Lord. It's a spontaneous response. We should sing. It's right. It's good. It's how we respond to God's salvation of us. Don't be shy. Sing. Sing with all your heart because you are saved through Christ. 
You know, one writer said these words well, the history of salvation is sometimes described as a drama, the drama of redemption. However, this drama is actually a musical. The peace of Christ, you know, I, I love these words in this Getty hymn. The peace of Christ makes fresh my heart, a fountain ever springing. All things are mine since I am His. How can I keep from singing? How can we keep from singing? Singing the praises of our Redeemer is a natural overflow of our new life. So how should we praise our Lord? Moses' song of praise praises the Lord in these ways, you know, for who He is, for what He has done, and for what He will do. So very quickly, just a quick overview of this song. We praise the Lord for who He is. The Lord is His name. Verse 3, He is the sovereign, faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is a man of war. Verse 3, you know, not, not a very common, like, maybe not a destination of God that we're very familiar with, but God is described as a divine warrior, again, who fights for His people. He saves through judgment. He is almighty, glorious in power. Verse 6, there is none like the Lord. He is majestic in holiness. Verse 11, there's none like Him because He's distinct from His creation, set apart perfectly pure. He is faithful, abounding in steadfast love. Verse 13, the Lord is the everlasting King who will reign forever and ever. Verse 18, we praise the Lord for who He is. We praise the Lord for what He has done. He has triumphed gloriously. Verse 1, vanquishing Egypt's mighty army. He has executed judgment on his enemies, his wrath consumes them like stubble. Verse 7, you know, Pharaoh boasted of what he could do, right? Verse 9, you know, you notice that I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, I will draw my sword. Pharaoh boasted about what he could do to Israel, but the Lord has taken down the proud. He has humbled the proud. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. The Lord has kept His promise to save His people. Verse 13, He has led the people whom He has redeemed. Then we praise the Lord for who He is, for what He has done, but also what He will do. The Song of Moses looks forward to what the Lord will do for His people. Now notice Moses begins to talk about the conquest of the promised land towards the end of the song. He will enable Israel to conquer the promised land. Terror and dread will seize Israel's enemies to the people pass by whom you have purchased. Verse 16. The Lord will dwell with His people in the land. He shall be their God and they shall be His people. You know, this is the goal of the Exodus right here in verse 17. This is why God is bringing them out from Egypt. Verse 17 says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. God promised Abraham a people, blessing, and a place, a place that sin drove them out of the garden, but God promises them a place where he will live with them forever. You know, verse 17 looks forward to the Lord building His temple in Jerusalem through Solomon, David's son. You know, beloved, if we have trusted in the Lord, then this is our story, this is our song. You know, notice how the song is personal. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength, my song. He has become my Salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Moses is not just singing about God in the third person. This is His God. And friends, if we have trusted in Christ, this is our song, because this is our God. We don't merely sing about the Lord, we, we sing to our Lord. The song is for everyone, just as Miriam leads the women in singing, 
all of God's people come together with one voice to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, we encourage congregational singing. You know, when you come on Sundays, the singing doesn't just happen here. Right? This is not a performance. It's congregational. Whether you like it or not, if you are in Christ, you've already joined the choir. All of us are in God's choir. We don't have to practice specially and sit there to be in the choir. No, all of us are in the choir. Why? Because we are God's redeemed people if we have trusted in Christ. So we all have the joy not, not mere duty, but the joy of singing His praise. Why wouldn't we? How can we keep from singing? Even in your deep distress, we can sing and remind ourselves, remind one another of the confidence that we have in our Redeemer. You know, singing is good for our souls. Singing expresses the unity that we have in the gospel, that we belong as God's redeemed people together to Him. We remember our redemption together. So singing here is very different from singing in our shower, isn't it? We gather weekly to sing songs rich with gospel truth. Why? Because we are forgetful people and we need our brothers and sisters to sing to us to remind us of God's great redemption. And we sing to remind others of God's great redemption. Our, our singing is one of the best ministries that we can do to one another. Moses' song gives voice to our hope. You know, Moses' song looks forward to an even greater temple. Not a physical building, but an even greater temple fulfilled in a person where God shall dwell with His people forevermore. And in the new creation... All of God's redeemed people from all the nations, not just ethnic Israel, all the nations will gather around God's throne. Our enemies, Satan, sin and death will be washed away, wiped away. And what will we do? We will sing. What shall we sing? We shall sing the song of Moses, Revelation 15. This is the very song that we'll sing, so better start practicing now. We will sing the song of Moses, Revelation 15 verse 3. We will sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Amen.